1: 996 so you can join us this evening. Also taking your messages on the WBSM app chats. Uh, I did get a message uh, from a, uh, a listener saying that they support the city council sending the board of health nominee back for, um, to ask more questions about the safe injection site. I think that's, it's it's pretty interesting. I will say I think the Ward Three City Council race is what moved that conversation. Um, that's something that a, one of the candidates, Jake Ventura, had uh, pushed for, which was good. Probably <laughs> his influence there didn't <laughs> reflect his vote share very well, very much. Uh, Eighty-five votes. I said more better more press releases than votes. for Jake. But um but he did he he did actually move that issue. <laughs> sorry. I uh I said I was done uh with that stuff. <laughs> um <laughs> sorry. Uh. Anyway, so five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. You heard from uh, Ward Five City Councilor Scott Lima. He supported uh, said Councilor Gomes' motion to send the Board of Health nominee back to committee because uh, they had questions on the safe injection sites and parallel products. The parallel products portion is kind of interesting because I I know that there's been some more concerns about that. I know that there's residents. Uh, up in the north end in Ward One, that aren't particularly pleased with the outcome of what made the resolution Mayor Mitchell had uh, had struck with, with the um, with Parallel Products. It's been a thing that's been going on for years now. But, and I know Parallel Products had had some public forums recently. Uh, they they ran some advertisements here on WBSM. Uh, about for some public forums that they were hosting to answer questions and concerns that the residents had, award uh, of of uh, of the far north end, the people that live near the um, near the site of Parallel Products. So it is kind of interesting. I don't know if there's what more discussion there needs to be had in terms of the Board of Health on that on that action. Um, I guess we'll find out, but. You know, it's, I mean, again, I think it's, you know, Chris and I talked about it. I think when you're, when you're nominating people to positions, I think it's good to ask important questions on policy. I happen to be more pro safe injection site than apparently the council seems to be. Um, I think there needs to be a destigmatization on that, uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> Um Sorry. I'm getting texts about my um about my uh about my, my biting commentary on the some of the candidates in the race on Tuesday. But uh, so anyway, I happen to be more in the pro safe injection site uh, side. I know the city council's pretty pretty fervently against it. Most of them are at least cuz I know it was I think a unanimous resolution the last time, but the you know, the council's changed over a little bit since then. I wonder if this becomes an issue um in the next uh in this in this election cycle as well. Um Safe injection sites are not a new thing. They've been kind of around for about 30 years, but the idea is pretty new to fairly new to the United States. It has been tried, um, both illicitly and under the col- color of law in the United States in areas like, uh, Canada, um, and in the european union where it's been tried i think there's been a positive correlation with uh, doing uh, using a with the presence of safe injection sites and a decline in overdose deaths in those areas um you know there's concerns i guess and you know some of the protections you have to put around a safe injection site obviously is you know you can't have like you know there has to be basically a you know, you have to, if you, if you go to a safe injection site, if you arrive in a safe injection site for the purpose of safely consuming an illicit substance for fear of dying of an overdose, then you have to make that area free of, you know, basically sort of uh, a safe zone in terms of criminal offenses. Now that doesn't mean, you know, you can be carrying bricks of fentanyl into a safe injection site and the police can't stop you obviously. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but, it does mean that um, it uh, it does mean that if you have like a small possession amount of of drugs, you know, you can't be prosecuted for having it on the grounds of a safe injection site. Now that's something a lot of prosecutors' offices are sort of moving towards anyway, in terms of like. When we talked about it, actually, when we had D.A. Cruz in, <clears throat> we talked about um, when we had D.A. Cruz in uh, during uh, some time during the primary season, and he talked about um, he talked about uh, you know uh, d- uh, diversion, diverting cases, basically, you know, finding an alternative uh, as opposed to prosecuting for cases like you know the example I'd given was like a possession class B, right someone with a, a, a clean bop, a board of probation, um, probation record, a clean bop, and like a possession class B charge. Yeah, that probably gets diverted. You know, in a lot of cases too, sometimes even if it goes through the DA's office and someone has a record, uh, some of those charges are indicative of somebody who is a drug user. It could get, you know, it could get diverted to drug court, right? So you'd have to make those areas... You know, free from criminal penalties. Obviously, with some exceptions. Again, you can't carry bricks of fentanyl into into the into the safe injection site, right? If you have consumable, personable, uh, like a, 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 a an amount that's equivalent to a personal consumption above distribution weight, above trafficking weight. Um, I mean, uh, below distribution weight, below trafficking weight. And I know sometimes distribution charges don't actually depend, you know, it's not entirely dependent on the weights, it's also dependent on the number of individualized packages you have of that particular drug, the presence of paraphernalia, such as a scale or the amount of cash that you have on you. I understand all that as well, but you know what I mean? So, um, you know, the thing is, there was some movement on this over the years, but I believe when andrew welling was the u.s attorney for massachusetts he's the u.s attorney under trump um he was the u.s attorney under trump the he said that they'd be sending the feds in there basically they they would not you know there'd be a dereliction i think they said there would be a dereliction of you know their duty to not do that they would prosecute Uh, safe injection sites. He did say, he did kind of say that with marijuana sites as well, but he didn't say that with marijuana dispensaries. He didn't say, I won't prosecute marijuana dispensaries. He just said, I can't commit not to doing that, right? It's a violation of my oath of office to commit to not, um, prosecuting, uh, marijuana dispensaries, even though I think that's widely accepted, uh, as good practice in, um, Widely accepted as good practice uh, in um, uh, in Massachusetts and most of the com in uh, most of the country. There are some states that haven't moved forward with marijuana. <sighs> you can probably guess which ones, but um, but uh, some might surprise you. But I think that's kind of part of this conversation too. Is that we have over time moved to a position, moved to a place where. Most people, the overwhelming majority of people, feel as though marijuana is at a place where it is destigmatized and can be regularly consumable and recreationally consumable. It's a personal choice that people make that doesn't have an adverse effect on anybody else. Now, that's not the, it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison for a safe injection site, right? But uh, because I don't think there's ever a position where you can say, hey, yeah, fentanyl, Or heroin is a safely consumable product that can be done, you know, safely or at least on your own time. Everybody can do it if you want to do it and all of that stuff. Um, But I think the way in which it's treated, that definitely can move beyond the position where we're at now. It's just one of those things. It's a major change even though it's not a major change in a lot of other places, it'd be a major change in policy here. And so there's obviously going to be some concerns. I'm not saying the concerns around safe injection sites aren't real. I think they are real, but (laughs) so, um, so uh, I'm getting a lot of texts today. I'm sorry. And they're all, Pertinent. I'm trying to get, you know, information and stuff, and some people are just giving me a hard time. But anyway, 508 996 I'm going to take a break. I'll be right back. We were just talking about the city council rejecting a, uh, not rejecting, but sending a, a school committee, uh, I mean, a school committee, um, a Board of Health, uh, a Board of Health appointment back to committee um, the appointments and briefings committee because, uh, one of the counselors, counselor Gomes had raised some concerns about safe injection sites and, uh, the, you know, not being satisfied with her, her answers on safe injection sites and on, uh, parallel products. So, so, um, Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred is how you can join me. Also, take your messages on the WBSM uh, app chat. Uh, just got a couple app chats, um, basically, or messages from from the audience. People saying that they, some people saying that safe injection sites, something that the city can look into. Uh, I have another one saying um, uh, that uh, basically that they think it encourages criminality or it encourages drug use. I don't think that's true. Um, you know, so I think there's again, this is something that's going to have to go through a long legislative process it might be years down the road, but it's something apparently the New Bedford City Council wants to prepare for. And you know, to be fair, I think when we're talking about where where uh we're going to put a safe injection site, it's not going to be probably in Fairhaven or Dartmouth or Cushnet uh or Freetown. It's going to be probably in New Bedford, Fall River, Taunton, Attleboro, Brockton, et cetera. Now there's good reason for that. It's because that's where there will be a, the highest concentration of people who are drug users and people who are struggling with addiction. So it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, frankly, if there were, if it made sense to put it in um, Fair Haven, if it's something that would benefit the community to put it in Fairhaven or Dartmouth, I think that'd be fine too, but it obviously makes sense to make it accessible for people <laughs> and, you know, as accessible for the, the population that it needs to help as possible. And where would that be in the cities, a uh, Somerville, uh, Somerville has been kind of a, in Massachusetts, kind of a like breeding ground for like hyper liberal ideas, you know, I think they like even approved monogamy or something like that. That's kind of where they're at. <clears throat> they're they're sort of a they're sort of a a testing ground for very like hyper liberal stuff. It's kind of like what Florida is right now for conservative ideas. You know how like Ron DeSantis is saying, like whatever, outlawing gay teachers and saying that you know students uh, can't learn about slavery or anything, or like that they can't learn about racism. Uh, that's kind of what Somerville is, uh, for like more like left leaning ideas. They did, um, basically map out a plan for a safe injection site. They'd had, a, uh, they, they'd planned it, it would be open between either 10 or 24 hours a day, depending on what the city could afford. And it cost between 1.4 and 2.9 million, uh, $2, 2.9 million dollars a year, um, I think there's uh, like they're saying there's about two thousand people a year that are dying of of drug overdoses, so they're trying to move on that. Um, again, I don't know how they do that without state approval. And I imagine with this, you know, one point two or two point nine million, maybe for a city like Somerville, where there's a significantly more affluent population, it might make you know that might not be as high of a price tag. I think they're probably a more populous city too, and maybe have a bigger budget. I mean they're just outside of Boston <clears throat> so but I imagine anything that um I imagine anything that is coming through uh the pipeline on on safe injection sites in New Bedford in Fall River etc are going to be funded by the state that makes a lot more sense um cuz you know uh 1.2 or 2.9 million dollar line item in, in, in a, in a a municipal budget just added to a municipal budget like that. I don't think it's something that's probably doable. I don't think it's probably something that's doable without intervention from the state. Um, and I think the state's in a pretty good position to afford, uh, to afford to fund some of these programs because there is a, I think there is a, there is a, um, uh, yeah, it's just, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a little too expensive. Now they're saying, uh, you know, I'm just reading this is from, it's from WBUR, but they're saying like 55%, it's, what's interesting is as liberal as Somerville is and uh, they elect like, Somerville's very, is pretty left politically. Like they elect like card carrying members of the DSA. To the state house. Actually, I interviewed their state rep uh, a few years ago on my old show. She's great. Actually, I hope maybe I can get her on sometime. Uh, sometime um, now that I think about it, but. They're saying they did a v- virtual community forum and 55% of Somerville residents who participated listed themselves as supportive. So that's just the people that showed up and participated in that forum. 55 seems kind of like a, a pretty low number. And especially if it's 55% of, pay- of people who are just paying attention and showing up to this forum, it seems like a fairly low number. 18% said they were curious. 13% were opposed. I do imagine if you were to poll New Bedford on whether or not they support safe injection sites... I'm willing to bet the majority, I think a a very solid um, absolute majority would be against safe injection sites. I think, I think a majority would be against safe injection sites. I think as safe injection sites, I think it'd be a pretty safe majority too. So I think you might have a situation too, where, you know, the city councilors are looking to try to represent their, their voters. Because if this does go to the Board of Health, the Board of Health is a you know, is is appointed by the city council and confirmed by the mayor. Uh, you know, in towns like Fairhaven, it's elected. So you can make it an election issue. If it were in a town like Fairhaven or even a, a city like Taunton, you could make that an election issue. The Board of Health. You know, you can make that an election issue where your Board of Healths are elected. But in New Bedford, once you appoint somebody for a term of I think it's three years, you know, they can do Basically, whatever they want, uh, and they they have unilateral authority after they're appointed to that position. Now, you know, typically, if you want to stay in that position, you want to probably do what the mayor wants, or you may want to listen to the city council for uh, advisory purposes. But you know, once a decision like that is made by the board of health, I think it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to. To uh, to reverse, so it does make sense because I do think the majority of people probably in New Bedford, even in, if I think the surrounding towns would think of a safe injection site, and I think most people would say no to that idea. So, again, I do think it's something that's really. I think it's, you know, they the legislature too. The legislature did table a bill on safe injection sites. It's, again it's a two-year legislative session I just imagine it has to go through that whole process again you know if that bill's filed it might have been filed um if that bill's filed it's got to go through all the committee assignments that it's got to go through and then it's got to get to the house floor and it's going to go to a vote and then the governor's got to sign it I don't know I don't know if governor Healy's made a made her position clear on that I think she's staking out a pretty moderate position on a lot of things so I don't know if she's going to agree with that but kind of interesting that the council's getting ahead on this, uh, uh, getting ahead um, on this issue. I don't think it's something that maybe the Board of Health nominee had expected would happen. Maybe they should have. Uh, maybe she should have expected it, but uh, maybe she wasn't advised about it, and that's why they weren't satisfied with her answers. She wasn't really advised that this would become an issue and that she'd be taking questions on it. Maybe she thought, well, I'll just do this and, you know, I'll get appointed or whatever. Maybe she wasn't advised by Mitchell or anybody else that if you take this appointment, you're going to, you know, you're going to, uh, if you ask for, you know, if, if I nominate you, you may get asked about safe injection sites, you may get asked about parallel products, you may get asked about whatever the, um, the the methadone clinic you may get asked questions about that you need to have your answers ready and they might tell you know i support this i don't support this i don't know if the mayor has staked out a position on on uh, on safe ejection sites but i guess it wouldn't matter a whole lot uh if this board of nom- uh, board of health nominee goes through and they're supportive of it so 508-996-0500 is how you can join me this evening um we're also taking your messages on the wbsm on the wbsm app chat uh i think yeah, we heard from uh city councilor at large uh scott i mean city uh, ward 5 city councilor scott lima by the way tomorrow actually while we're um speaking of uh Council Lima, tomorrow there is going to be a uh uh paul Haro, the bristol county sheriff he's touring the local lawmakers he's touring local lawmakers around the ash street jail and the ice detention facility tomorrow um i know a lot of lawmakers that i've talked to that have talked to me about it are supportive of it i there's some writings on wbsm.com you can check out tony cabral said he's open to the idea um i think he said he supported closing Ash Street for a while chris markey's very supportive of it i think you know chris markey of course works as a defense attorney as an assistant district attorney uh, was an assistant district attorney prior to um prior to working as a defense attorney and becoming a state rep so i think he's pretty familiar with the goings on in the local criminal justice system uh you know it centralized operations in dartmouth it would get them more uh, better access to programming uh, and that regional lockup would be available, so he was supportive uh he was supportive of that. I know um Council Lima said he's gonna to be there, obviously, that's that that building is in his ward, so he's going to really be a steward for what comes next with the Ash Street jail. Um, I know, I don't know exactly the roster of lawmakers there. He said he wanted to invite other people like Jamie L. Eld- he talked about inviting Jamie Eldridge. Uh, Jamie Eldridge just said it is a Senator from, from Acton, who is the, um, a Senator from Acton, who is the, um, who is the chair of the Senate judiciary committee. So, you know, it's something that i think they would be involved in they do handle a lot of bills with um criminal justice matters you know we had chris hendricks on who sits on the uh, house judiciary committee and talked to him about some of the stuff they were handling over there so chris hendricks i believe is going to be on the tour um uh he's going to obviously be very important in this process too not just as a new Bedford rep but somebody who um but somebody who is in uh somebody who is involved who sits on the judiciary committee as an attorney Um, is going to be very instrumental in this process as well. So I believe they're doing a tour of Ash Street and then they're doing a tour of the ICE detention facility. And I think they're doing some other tour uh, after that. So um, I'm going to be there. I'm definitely going to the Ash Street site to to, um, check it out, take more pictures. I have a real camera this time. So they don't allow cell phones inside the prison, which I should have anticipated because I take a lot of pictures on my cell phone. They don't allow cell phones in the house of correction. Actually, every time I go there, I have to put my... When I used to go there to visit clients, I used to have to put my cell phone in a locker. You have to put basically everything in a locker. All your electronics and everything into a locker. You also have to have quarters in your. if you're in Dartmouth. Like a quarter, which I didn't know the first time. So you just... You have to go grab a quarter. Put it in the... Put it in the... Uh, You have to grab a quarter put it in the uh in the locker and then that's how you get your key and then you get the quarterback after you put your key in but i didn't know that last time and the walk from the parking lot to the house of correction is uh absolutely dreadful it's pretty awful i know they i think they might have fixed it for defense attorneys but so i was really (laughs) upset it was in the middle of winter too so i was really upset about having to walk back to the uh to my car to grab a quarter because the CEO didn't have a quarter for some reason so that was really that was that was really upsetting but um yeah so you're not allowed to have electronics so i actually have a real camera this time so i can take some pictures of uh inside of Astreet. there are some pictures you can check out on wbsm.com. i i'd had uh i'd had um the public information officer take some pictures on my behalf and uh, uh because he was able to bring his phone in because uh, he works there but i wasn't able to bring my phone in whatever I mean, he works there. I don't. I don't work there. That's totally understandable. I'm not griping about that. But um, I have a real camera now, so they're going to be touring with local lawmakers. I'll find out which ones are there. I guess when I get there. But the lawmakers I had talked to about it that were supportive were um, Rep. Haddad, uh, Rep. Markey, Rep. Cabral. Uh, that's I think that's three, four. Yeah, Rep. Haddad, Rep. Markey, Rep. Cabral. I talked to some other members of the delegation and, you know, they are I think some of them are like some of them are supportive. Some of them are withholding their commentary until they see a plan, you know, until they see uh, everything and they don't want to, you know, exactly give their position out yet. And I think that makes sense. Uh, I think that makes sense as well, because, you know, frankly, when he's out there just saying, oh, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be ten million dollars, right? Or it's going to be um, it's going to be this, and I know this because I'm a mayor, and I said in the capital planning committee. You know, that's all well and good, and that could be the ballpark estimate, but we don't we don't know exactly what it's going to cost yet. He's going to have to work with the you know Department of um, um what's it called DCAM, the Department of Capital. Asset management and maintenance. It's gonna to have to work with DCAM to Really figure all of that out get that all like planned out and priced out I, I believe they do that I know the Department of uh, Corrections gonna to have to do an audit of the Bristol County House of Correction as well So there's still a lot of moving parts that they don't they still don't know exactly the price tag if that price tag goes down Um, I think that's obviously better, but if it jumps to 20 million, let's say after, you know, Rome makes his estimate at 10, if it jumps to 20, right. Then there might be a different conversation because, you know, my theory on it was it shouldn't just be like, you know, Mitchell had brought up, I think a pretty good point. Mayor Mitchell had expressed some skepticism because he said, well, what if this, what if closing ash, what if the $10 million price tag, how's that going to affect other capital projects in New Bedford? I think there's a couple ways you can look at that one is like if it means creating like a safer space for people who work at the house of correction the people who are inmates um you know a more modernized space that's going to be better for their you know pursuit of uh re-entering society once they're out i I don't know if that's like i don't know if well how's this going to affect other capital projects is is a is a really overarching concern to, like, you know, the health and safety of human beings. Um, but, like, you know, let's consider that point for a second. I My my position on it was, and I think it might have been a little bit naive, but my position on it was this shouldn't just be, like, the reps from Dartmouth, the reps from New Bedford, the New Bedford delegation advocating for this, because realistically, this is a Bristol County project it includes everybody from down here all the way up to North Attleboro all the way up to Mansfield and Norton and Easton and 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 uh, Taunton etc so it should be a collective effort right and you know and that, that that was my position on it it should be a collective effort it shouldn't just be because it impacts all Bristol County residents it should in all Bristol County police departments it should be, an issue it should be an issue for everybody in bristol county and not just a few you know not just the people who are directly here representing this area the new bedford and Fairhaven and and dartmouth reps etc it should be everybody's issue but i do kind of understand you know when it comes down to the practical reality of if you're advocating for something it's in your district it's in your district right you know Um, I do understand that that's a a reality, too. I just thought a little bit more broadly that there should be a much broader coalition than just the people
0: down here advocating for it. But
1: I'm going to take a break. We'll be right back.
0: New Bedford's Bedford's News Talk Station, 1420 WBSM. Hey, it's Mike. Take South Coast Tonight with you wherever you go. Stream Chris and Marcus on the WBSM app or get their podcast on the app at WBSM.com. Now back to South Coast Tonight.
1: Hey, welcome back. I'm just going to actually take one more quick break and then we'll be back to wrap up the show here at South Coast Tonight. So stay tuned. 14... Uh, just wrapping up the show. Um, we'll be back tomorrow with Chris. We're gonna, we've got, uh, I think a pretty good guest planned it's still in the works, but our Friday night shows are always, um, are always a blast. So looking forward to, um, being back here, uh, tomorrow to, uh, to have some fun. I guess, uh, one thing I wanted to reflect on, uh, is, uh, it's the three year anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death. He's my favorite athlete. uh, my, yeah, probably my favorite all-time athlete, and uh, you know, I, I'd written a piece on him on wbsm.com uh, about what was interesting. We all know about what a fantastic playing legacy he left, and I said, you know, it's a guy who's really stood, you know, was such a remarkable talent in terms of his athletic ability and and all of that, and his 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 basketball ability that you, you know you assume people at that level that <clears throat> of sort of operating at that level don't have the same like really fragile mortality that we all have uh you know that they're not operating with the same fragile mortality that we all are um but uh they are and it's a stark reminder that you know no matter who you are no matter how magnificent magnificent of a story you have you don't necessarily have control about who closes that book and I think that was one of the really shocking things is someone like that in their prime, uh, going in such like, a random and horrifying way, not to mention his daughter, but you know, I'd read, wrote written a piece about, you know, his playing legacy and how he's inspired a lot of people who love the sport of basketball, who love sports in general, um, to really get into something that they love and give it their all. Something I've tried to do here. And, but, There was so much more that he wanted to accomplish off the court, which I think a lot of people don't realize. You know, there was he he started writing a book. He created basically in his head uh, and on the paper um, an entire like uh, Tolkien esque, J.R. Tolkien, you know, Tolkien esque kind of fantasy uh, world that he was starting to write books on. You know, he'd written a couple books on, on, um, on, on that he had uh, written his own book, obviously on his career. He was, uh, he had just won an Oscar, uh, had fairly recent, fairly recently before his death. He had just won an Oscar for, um, a movie called Dear basketball, which I, it's a, it was an Oscar for best, uh, short film. I watched it. It is very powerful. Um, he was the narrator of it. So, in a, in a producer. So he had just won an Oscar. He was starting a he started a, a a company called Granity Studios where he was going to get he was going to impact the entertainment business in a very big way. He was a guy that spoke multiple languages. Um actually um uh I think it was um Luka Doncic. Uh Luka Doncic who's a player from uh Who's a player who plays for the um, uh, who plays for the Mavericks? Is an NBA star. He's from Slovenia, and he he was getting yelled at by Kobe Bryant his native language because Kobe had actually spent uh, time in Italy growing up. He was uh, he spent time in Italy because his dad played for uh, in in the NBA over there in Europe. And so Kobe spoke fluent Italian. He spoke fluent Spanish. So he was able to speak other languages as well. It was really interesting. Um, so this is something I want to leave you guys with really a terrible, awful, you know, when, especially when you consider his daughter was there, just a, an unspeakable tragedy. But I think one of the things that we forget is the legacy he left on the court, the legacy he left pales in comparison to the legacy he intended to leave. Right. He intended to do so much more. He wanted to branch out. This was supposed to be a new chapter in his life, a life that had already included a 20-year Hall of Fame career where he he has become undoubtedly one of the top 10 greatest in his sport of all time and one of the most celebrated athletes of all time. And he had had more to accomplish. He had had, uh, like I said, a, a career in uh, movie production, in uh, as an author, right, and all of that was just getting off the ground, and it got cut tragically short. Not to mention the, you know, the death of his thirteen-year-old daughter, who uh, he had, uh, you know, reportedly had a really special relationship with because she was a great basketball player herself, and actually kind of brought him back into the sport when he tried to leave it, try to leave it all behind. She brought him back to the Staples Center to watch Lakers games, so he could teach her you know, how the game was played. And that was like one of the last, one of his, you know, one of his last days Uh, he was at a Lakers game with his daughter, Gianna. It was, you know, LeBron was there and all of that. And that's when he would spoke speaking with Luka Doncic. So uh, just wanted to remember um, Kobe Bryant, again, not just a great athlete, not just an athlete that my generations looked up to a great deal, Um, but I think a a fairly remarkable uh, person um, by all accounts. And, uh, it's, it's quite a shame. So, all right. Thanks so much. I'll see you guys tomorrow.